Hello, and welcome back to another episode of From My Mom's Basement, the podcast recorded directly from my mom's basement. I'm your host, David Chamberlain. Um, Today's episode is titled Viral Vengeance, and it's written by me. Thank you. It's a codified fact, something laid forth and set in principle by the gods themselves, that the early stages of the common cold are possibly some of the worst sensations the human body can experience. It's in the top 25, anyway. Worse than dropping a 5-ton steel beam on your foot? Worse than getting your head stuck inside a giant anthill with your mouth full of honey? Worse than falling groin first into a heap of rusty barbed wire on the edge of a toxic waste facility? The simple answer to all of these grotesque scenarios is yes. You see, it's not so much the illness itself, but society's reactions to and perceptions of the illness that make it such a uniquely disagreeable form of viral infection. For example, if I, say, contracted type A influenza or a brutal sinus infection, I could expect time off work, ample sympathy from my coworkers and peers, and would be found exempt from any of my daily responsibilities. The powers that be have calibrated human reaction to be rather sympathetic towards most any maladies and diseases, but they have barred the common cold from receiving this same courteous respect. The common cold is treated as nothing more than a casual disturbance in the immune system, a small, transient rupture in the routine health of the individual, and nothing more. And so, if you have a throat that feels as rough and raw as gravel being poured into an open wound, or if your nose is pressurized like a two-liter soda that has just rolled down ten flights of stairs, or if your head is throbbing like the pulse of a marathon runner on mile 25, or if the back of your mouth feels caustic and fiery like a small amount of distilled, hyperpotent 7-Up is perpetually fizzing directly underneath your uvula, it doesn't matter. These symptoms, while terrible, are all, in effect, umbrellaed under a casual and lackluster disease that doesn't hold any sway with anyone. It doesn't cut the mustard. If you want out of work or school, you'd better come up with something better. And therein lies the problem. We, all of us, get smacked up, down, and sideways by even the most common of common colds, the most lowly of all viral infections, but even so, we cannot express it. We cannot let the public know that our body is struggling against such a rudimentary, unsophisticated disease. For this struggle would be taken as weakness, and this weakness would be taken for cowardice, and this cowardice would be the cause for divorces and demotions, fissures in corporate partnerships, unruly and disrespectful children, and so on and so forth. We must hide our inability to effectively eradicate the disease. And so, what invariably happens is people begin using their common cold symptoms as early indicators, burglar alarms of a much more insidious disease that is well on its way to occupying their body. Oh, oh I, I think I have strep throat. Yeah, it's really bad. <coughs> With this cough, I don't know. It could be pneumonia. It's scary stuff. Yeah, I, I, I better stay home today. Oh, my head is throbbing. I can't even hear out of my right ear. Yeah, I think it's an ear infection. I better get to the doctor. Yeah. All of these I-think-I-haves are taken with a great deal of validity and graveness. Never are the self-diagnoses questioned or analyzed further. 
The actual symptoms of the lying perpetrators, the running noses and headaches, cannot be considered serious themselves, but what they might represent, what they could be evidence of, these things are treated with a kind of morbid deference, no matter how unrealistic. So, what this means is that everyone has to lie. Everyone has to exaggerate and inject their symptoms with hyperbole and terror. It's one of the most insane qualities of being a human. This is the reason why the common cold is in the top 25 worst things imaginable. Not because it is so everlastingly painful and debilitating, but because, unlike getting your foot squashed under a 5-ton steel beam, if you contract the cold, you're still expected to make it through the day, baby. Bicknell Curtis was lamenting this fact while spending most of his workday blowing his nose and repeatedly swallowing in an effort to assuage the spiky medieval torture chamber that was working in the back of his throat. He could feel the spikes of the Iron Maiden clamping down on his vocal cords. He was a mess. He already worked a terrible job in a terrible office which provided him with an equally terrible salary, and now he was being forced to wade through all of that horribleness while his immune system was losing a serious battle for his health. Bicknell was not happy about this. He was angry at the corporate oligarchs whose capitalistic apathy seemed to dictate his life. Why wasn't the common cold a good enough excuse to stay home? These pencil-pushing nematodes feigned love and appreciation for their employees, but it was all a lie, all clever propaganda to keep people like Bicknell from rioting in the streets. By noon, hot chills were running up and down Bicknell's back in waves of feverish electricity. By 1 p.m., he was shivering uncontrollably. Could he make it all the way to 6.30? To that one moment of pleasure in his day known as clocking out? It was doubtful. His condition was declining rapidly, and there were no brakes on this ride. The cold was going to take him all the way down. And after having half a dozen spicy chorizo sausages for breakfast that morning, Bicknell's stomach was well on its way to flushing the flavorful porcine meat right out of his fat undercarriage. A disaster was converging right on top of Bicknell in a perfect storm of bodily mishaps. He wasn't going to bear the pain for much longer. Sweat stains began to saturate his underarms and run up his back as if a giant dog had given him one big, wet lick. Co-workers began asking Bicknell if he was okay, if his health would permit him to continue to work. But the bland, hollow intonations of their questioning revealed their true purposes. His co-workers were simply wondering if Bicknell would be able to complete the workload given him, or if they would be forced to pick up his slack. They were wondering if, like a car owner at a mechanic, he would be able to perform his job at the levels required, even under less than optimal conditions. But Bicknell was perceptive. He saw right through their casual sympathies and into the self-serving motivations behind their remarks. They were just trying to save their own skins. Bicknell's health be damned. No one cared. And to make matters worse, Bicknell had nothing to say to them in return, nothing that would satisfy them. His co-workers wanted to hear one of two things. I'm doing fine, thanks, don't worry about me. Or, my lungs are liquefying and my bowels are rotting, I don't think I'll be able to finish my work on time. The absolute last thing they would want to hear would be, I think I might be coming down with a cold, I don't feel very well. That answer would appease no one. And so Bicknell couldn't give his slimy little co-workers the truth. He was going to give them something else altogether. He was going to give them what the mystics of East Asia call Haletema, or what the Nordic tribes of the Hafsbjör region in northern Norway call Björthurnum, or what we Americans call vengeance. 
Some say it's a dish best served cold. Some say it's a dish best served as an appetizer at a Wolfgang Puck's bar and grill when the victim least expects it. Others say it's best not to serve it at all. But where's the drama in that? Bicknell was going to dish up his vengeance on a plate of mucus and saliva. He was going to make sure that his co-workers were going to have to experience his own exquisite pain. He was going to, through a system of methodical procedures, effectively proliferate his virus throughout the entire office, dooming his co-workers to his same fate. Then, Bicknell thought, a day would come when the entire office would be swallowing viral cactus needles in their throats and shivering in a freezing wave of fever. Their bones would ache, and their noses would hemorrhage mucus like a waterfall. Soon, all of their upper lips would be red and flaky from incessant nose-blowing, and their eyes would have the swollen, weary quality of the recently bereaved. And then, the call-outs would start to roll in, and Bicknell could listen with perverse glee as the many excuses piled up, none of which would have anything to do with the real reason why they were unable to come in, the common cold. But Bicknell would know he would know that they were all just as weak, if not more so, than he was. He would know that they were, in fact, facing the same lineup of symptoms, but could not be bothered to go to work. And he would be more than satisfied. Bicknell would start with Rebecca in quality assurance. She had rendered Bicknell the least acceptable expression of sympathy. It was almost vulgar by Bicknell's estimation, something especially hollow and degrading, and Bicknell was rather used to being degraded. She hadn't even peeled her eyes from her phone while speaking with him. Bicknell despised her. He was going to get her first. He waited. He bided his time. The moment had to be perfect. If caught during the implementation of his fiendish schemes, he could face serious punishment and even further social ostracization. He couldn't risk that. Everyone hated him already. He couldn't give them another reason to. Stealth would be a quality most paramount in his infectious mission. An hour passed. An hour of shivers and shakes and sneezes that ripped through his nostrils like shards of glass were skidding across his skin. But finally, Bicknell saw an opportunity. Rebecca was going to the break room for a mid-afternoon snack. He would have five minutes, give or take. That was more than enough time to effectively spread his contagion. He stood up from his chair, his knees wavering like tree limbs caught in a gale. He hardly had the strength to support the weight of his corpulent body. He would have to be strong. Under the guise of making a routine trip to the office copy machine, Bicknell hobbled over to Rebecca's little workstation, something decorated in photos of her various feline roommates, and got to work. First, he took her office phone receiver and let his nose leak snot onto the receiver like a thick flow of soft-serve ice cream, pooling up and falling into the small holes of the telephone receiver like rainwater into a manhole cover. He wiped any residual residue from the receiver and moved on to the computer mouse. Taking the mouse close to his lips, he let go a violent sneeze which contained a heavy ordinance of mucus and other contaminated materials. Rebecca's mouse was suddenly speckled with tiny dots of viral snot. It had the texturing of a car just leaving a car wash, luminescent and scaled in droplets of water. Then, taking her keyboard... Bicknell ran his tongue through the little rows of plastic squares, letting the yellow film covering his tongue run across her space bar. He pulled his face away from the keys to find them looking almost polished and new. Suddenly, there was the sound of clattering and jangling coming from the break room. Bicknell's stuffed-up senses were on high alert, and they were urging him to move on. Across the office, Bicknell spotted Jared, a man of rustic and athletic nature, moving towards the bathroom. 
Bicknell surmised that Jared would have a robust immune system, something propped up by years of cardiovascular exercise, fresh mountain air, and good-natured optimism. Not to mention the regimen of pills, supplements, and vitamins he seemed to take every day. Bicknell's viral assault on Jared would have to be quick and powerful, a pestilential blitzkrieg, if you will. When Bicknell arrived at Jared's desk, his hair was soaked with sweat and stuck to his forehead in long, spindly strands. It looked like he had just stepped out of a hot shower and slipped into his baggy business suit. And now his breathing was labored. Even under the best of circumstances, Bicknell struggled with any physical activity. But this was hard work, and his nose was completely blocked, providing no entry for oxygen. Bicknell, out of breath and leaking fluids from his pores, nose, and eyes, scoured Jared's desk for something useful, something that might be used as an immediate vector of transmission. And then, he saw it. A newly cracked open energy drink, still wet with condensation. It was perfect. He took the drink, dropped a few loogies into the small opening, letting the little salty packages dissolve and fizzle in the carbonated soda. Then, just as he had done with Rebecca's keyboard, he looked all around the cylindrical aluminum can, making sure to saturate every inch of the can with his poisonous saliva. No amount of vitamin D tablets or beefed-up white blood cells could hope to fend off such a frontal assault. Jared's immune system would crumble and fall. From Jared, it was on to Beth's desk, where Bicknell loosed a couple soggy boogers and a mouthful of spit into her box of orange Tic Tacs. He shook the plastic box around like a bartender mixing a fruity drink and slid it back under her desk. From Beth, it was on to Luke, where Bicknell, most insidiously, unclothed each one of his pieces of gum and ran the mint sticks over his sickly tongue. He then carefully refolded the foil wrappers with all of the skill and patience of a holiday gift wrapper at a department store. From Luke, he snuck over to Brendan's desk. Bicknell knew Brendan well. He was a gangly fellow who observed a strict diet of certain organic vegetables, whose fragrance nearly suffocated Bicknell every day. Bicknell was going to contaminate Brendan's sweet, innocent vegetables. He was going to make their natural healing properties turn against Brendan and wreak havoc upon his skinny body. Instead of in the break room, where most employees kept their food, Brendan needed his vegetables near his person at all times. It was out of necessity. His strict diet necessitated a constant caloric intake, or else Brendan would most likely wither away and die. So, when Brendan went on break at 4.30, Bicknell had his choice of veggies to contaminate. They were all packed up nicely in a semi-transparent Tupperware, something eco-friendly, no doubt. Bicknell wrenched open the lid and found that, to his great relief, he couldn't smell the terrible little vegetables. His nose was protected by mounds of mucus and snot. Bicknell took each of the long, curious-looking vegetables, which were wet and shiny, and slipped them into his mouth. He ran them around his tongue and the inside of his cheeks like you would a mouthful of Listerine, and then spat them back out into the Tupperware. But he wasn't done there. He took a few used Kleenexes from his pocket, which he had been saving for some impish purpose such as this, and wiped the crusted remnants of past nose expenditures from the Kleenexes and onto the moist skins of the vegetables. The mucousy matter was more or less disguised against the already freakish-looking skin of the organic food. Then Bicknell went to the water cooler, leaving his mark on the little blue and red-colored faucets by poking his snot-coated fingertips up inside their little water-dispensing mouths. He also made sure to get his grubby, germ-infested fingers on as many of the paper cups as possible, and into some he left a syrupy surprise. Then it was on to the break room, where any meal left in the refrigerator was liable to be coughed on or sneezed over. 
A large tub of clam chowder was left with a few foreign chunks floating in the mix, and all of the plastic silverware was besmeared with liquid that was leaking from Bicknell, whether from his nose, mouth, or otherwise. The coffee pot was flavored with some crusty lip flakes and his own body sweat, which he wrung out of his shirt sleeves like water from a dish towel. By 6.30, the office was as contaminated as a medical tent in 1918. You could practically see the virus dancing in the air, jumping with glee at being introduced to a horde of new hosts. When Bicknell left the office, he was still feverish, still weak, still snot-ridden and sweat-covered, still swallowing what felt like hawk talons lodged in his throat, but he was victorious. He had successfully spread his virality across his entire workspace. He was buzzing with anticipation, ready for all of his co-workers to begin dropping like flies, one by one, succumbing to the most lowly of all viruses. But Bicknell wouldn't be able to enjoy the fruits of his diabolical labors, for as the days pressed on and his cold symptoms began to subside, new, unexpected symptoms, symptoms that could not be entirely attributed to the common cold, presented themselves in all their cruel glory. His sniffles went away, but a new kind of back pain began to radiate up and down his spine. His fever dissipated, but his mind became cloudy, and a chronic fog of confusion began to hang over him. His thoughts were dull, and at sometimes completely senseless. And then the vomiting started. With a concerning regularity, Bicknell found himself huddled over his little, mold-stained toilet, emptying his bowels at about 30-minute intervals throughout the day. These were no longer symptoms of a common cold. It seemed that his cold had evolved. It was no longer common, but something more noble and esteemed, something that perhaps needed medical care. When his neck stiffened to a point of complete rigidity, no longer affording him the flexibility to even casually look to the left or right, he knew there was a serious problem. And so, just like all of those people he despised, he had to call into work and explain that, under a vague assumption, there was something seriously wrong with him, and he needed immediate medical attention. But now it would look as though he was just another one of his co-workers, calling in and lying about their symptoms and their cause in order to escape the judgment of their condescending colleagues. After a long internal debate, Bicknell finally drove himself to the doctor's office, arriving with no small amount of shame and humiliation. But his neck was tingling now. It was like his nerves were dancing in one long conga line all down his spinal column. He needed serious help. The doctors ran tests, probed his orifices, drew blood, and urged him to change his diet. And after this series of annoying and sometimes painful examinations, a doctor came into the room with some results. Well, it's serious. It's a good thing you came in when you did. It's, uh, it's bacterial meningitis. It can be life-threatening. We need to get on this right away. Oh, oh dear. It is interesting, though. What, what's interesting? Bicknell asked. Well, normally you see this in college dorms and boarding schools, places where kids are smashed in together, you know, places where these things can really grow and propagate. <laughs> it's not like you've been drinking strangers' drinks and eating your roommate's food, right? <laughs> the doctor laughed. Yeah, right, Bicknell laughed. That's, that's very strange. That was Viral Vengeance. 
by David Chamberlain. This episode was written, edited, and produced by me, and the music is by Kevin McLeod. Thank you for listening. Thank you.